Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. We want to thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. We are here to help you become a student of yourself, giving you ideas you can use on your self-development journey. And we're launching our series on the Enneagram, as you may know, and think you'll love this if you want to dive deeper into ways you can grow beyond your personality type. Go to BigSelfSchool.com backslash Enneagram and download our free guide, How to Unlock Your Potential with the Enneagram. Again, that's BigSelfSchool.com backslash Enneagram. It's a free guide, and I think you're going to just love it as well as the conversation we're about to have. Hello to our Type 1 panel. I am over the moon excited to have you all here and to share your stories and insights of being a Type 1 um, in, in life, in leadership, and anything you want to share. Um, what I'm really committed to, and I know that you three are as well, is using the Enneagram to grow, not just to diagnose ourselves as a type um, or to live in that box, but to really use it as the tool that we all know it's intended, which is to help us grow, help us understand people. And so that's what this conversation is about. Um, so I want you all to introduce yourself a little bit. Start with your name. Um, feel free to share whatever you want, but in particular, just kind of uh, your role right now, the work you're doing. And if you'd like to share a little bit about your background with the Enneagram, that would be awesome as well. Christy, you want to go first? You're in the top of my panel there. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having um, me on. It's an honor and it's just fun to, fun to do this. Um, so I'm a, a coach, a life coach, and um, I discovered the Enneagram about, um, let's see, about 2013. I was living in New Delhi, India and coming to the end of myself and really coming undone. And I didn't know why. And someone, um, a blogger, mentioned the Enneagram, and then my eyes kind of perked up, and I was like, wait, what? You know, and so I bought my first book, and, um, man, it was just so amazing to read about myself as a type one and discover, like, what a type one is. Um, so i just been so angry over some circumstances, um, and I could not get rid of my anger. It wasn't something I could fix. And as a Christian, and I was, I was leading a small group Bible study, um, every, every prayer request I had for like <laughs> more months than I'd like to uh, admit were, you know, please pray for my anger. I'm so angry. And, um, a friend of mine who I brought that up with, who was in that Bible study, remembered thinking, just don't be angry. <laughs> like, like it was an option to not be angry. <laughs> and so, you know, that's when I um, came to the Enneagram and, you know, started learning about myself. And I really didn't start my uh, really big journey with it until I um, did a workshop for an Enneagram uh, certification program. So um, I'm a life coach and I use the Enneagram all the time in my coaching. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Angie, want to go next? Yes. Um, I am Angie Liskey, and let's see, I want to say it's been about four years with the Enneagram, but probably about six years 
since people kept saying, do you know about the Enneagram? I feel like you would like that. So I think that was partially because I love personality type things and um, just kind of like how we all operate in the world and all that. But I also think that they were seeing some things that I was not seeing. And so that was kind of actually embarrassing as a one uh, later on. But so what happened was I just was studying on my own and just started sharing different things, you know, probably oversharing for sure for a while. Uh, And then I just started doing trainings and I bought a curriculum set and started leading small groups through the Enneagram curriculum. Mm -hmm. And then over time, I just kept kind of adding to and adding to and taking things away. I didn't feel like worked. And uh, then the pandemic happened. And so all my little in-person groups didn't work anymore. And I just thought, well, this is just, I guess, the end of it. Didn't feel like the end, but people kept asking and kept emailing. And I ended up running, I don't know, I think I had during 2020 at home, I think I had 100 people go through my groups, which was so amazing. But also I think that kept me from going to the really dark place as well, because I had something every day that I loved. So I lead groups through Enneagram curriculum. I ended up making my own curriculum earlier this year, so I don't use the old one anymore. And everything's on Zoom. And I have been doing some typing interviews, and then I take people who are usually in my classes, I work with them after if they want help actually into implementing some of the stuff that we've learned. So that's what I'm doing. That's great. Thank you. And I met both Christy and Angie through the CP Enneagram um, certification program, which we are all going through together as well. So Randa, tell us about you. Yeah, I'm Randa Hinton. I um, recently graduated in 2020 with a master's from USC. So I'm a pandemic grad, and I highly recommend trying to find a job during a pandemic. It's great. Um, And I learned about the Enneagram probably seven years ago when I was an undergrad. My friend Steph Barron Hall runs the Nine Types Co. Enneagram account on Instagram. Um, So I learned about it through her. Um, and she really like just challenged me to kind of look at it um, and learn a little bit more about myself. So I um, use the Enneagram professionally. I work in tech. I'm in marketing. Um, and then also I have a podcast for early career professionals. So I use the Enneagram um, to help me understand how to relate better to others. Um, and then also use it as I'm talking to students who are really trying to find their way and navigate their next jobs next careers um, and help them understand a little bit more about themselves. So mine is a little bit more um, personal. I'm not really coaching others on Enneagram. I'm just using it to help them understand a little bit more about themselves um, in professional settings. That's great. Awesome. I'm so glad you're all here. This is going to be a a really um, enlivening, I think illuminating conversation for people that, are ones or no ones, or if you're not a one, I think that people will learn a whole lot um, today. So we're going to start with centers of intelligence. So starting kind of from a little bit of a more general, and then we'll dig in a little bit to the type. Um, For people that don't know the center of intelligence, the type one is a body type. And so there's a lot of uh, intelligence around gut knowing and instincts and the senses and really 
uh, body types have literally that their body houses kind of uh, movement or, or lack of movement, <laughs> depending on the type. So I really want you all just to share briefly um, what it's like being a t- body type and what have you learned about yourself as a body type? Yeah. Um, I can start. I, um, I carry everything in my body, <laughs> like physically. So I actually have fibromyalgia, um, which I learned in my early 20s. Um, and now that I understand what being a type one is and like judgment and critical of yourself really more than others, it makes so much more sense that I house all of my emotions literally physically. And it takes like a lot for me, um, to let them kind of come out. Um, so yeah, I think for me, I've had to do a lot of work in finding ways, one, to relax, um, to let things go. Um, and to not um, carry the weight of the world um, on my shoulders, which is so interesting to say that because um, carrying the weight of your shoulders is something that's like a common phrase. But like when you have fibromyalgia, that's really one of the areas that you feel um, a lot of pain. So I really had to do a lot of like deep diving into why I react to certain ways and really learn um, that I can control how I react in certain moments and I don't have to take things on physically. So that has been a learning lesson for me as a type one who's very high capacity, who loves to work. Um, but if I don't check myself, it will show up for me physically. And I'm going to talk about anger, ask you all about anger in a minute, but I am especially curious about body type, the type one with anger, like how that sits in your body or comes out in your body as well. I can answer that one. Uh, gosh, how does it not come out? I think, <laughs> uh, I, when I am, well, you know, ones are, are, we're trying to kind of hold in or repress their anger, right. Or trying not to show it. And so I also have a chronic pain diagnosis like Randa does different one but so it's probably pretty common my guess with ones the interesting thing about the anger is I thought for a long time I was fooling everyone holding it in but um, what I've noticed over the last year being home with all of my children all day and my husband working from home and lots of things in the world to be really angry about I I can make myself have a fever because I make myself so hot and upset. My cheeks get so red. I feel tingling through every part of my whole body. And what most of the time happens is it becomes energy that I use to fuel and get things done. And so like rage cleaning or organizing or whatever. But the problem is, is that kind of stops working as you get older and as your body starts kind of falling apart. And so those ways are not working so well anymore. So one of the things I've been trying to do is like take a walk instead of be angry in the, and run around my house like a crazy person. And that like, those kind of things are, I feel like are helping me release some of the anger from all the, every part of my body and just kind of like breathe and relax. It's really helpful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Christy, what about for you being yes. a body for me, being a body type um, means that I know things quickly. I take action quickly. 
I have a gut knowing, um, that I've, you know, interpreted as an intuition, you know, when, um, when I need to discern, you know, what's the right thing to do and, and I'm really good at it. Um, that's, you know, something we learned in one of our classes is that actually we are, we we're right a lot of the time, actually. So that was, that was affirming. <laughs> and I don't often doubt when I know something. And, um, probably one of the trickier things about that is I assume that everyone else like should know also, like I know. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love hearing this as a heart type. Uh, and as someone truly, y'all, I've not like been in my body or even conscious that I have a body until just like a few years ago where I, my body was breaking down. It's like, Oh, I think I should take care of it. I think I should start exercising. I think I should eat better. And, but I wasn't even aware of like anything happening in my body. So to hear you all say that there's so much information that's coming and going, I think is really, um, just really interesting. Something that I'm continuing to learn from all my body type friends. Um, I want to share a few uh, definable characteristics about type one. Um, and I'd, I'd love for you to add any, if I've missed some or correct me, if you don't agree with these. Um, first one principled and oriented to do the right, or maybe for some perfect thing, uh, represses or contains their anger highly attuned to their inner critic, works to improve self and or others, and is results-oriented. So I'm curious what you all think about that list, first of all, if you'd add anything, and how do some (laughs) of the characteristics show up for you, in particular uh, around your work and your leadership? Hmm. I would love to say something about this. I would... I could, all all of those, all of those characteristics are very true for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that working to improve self and others. So a few years ago, my husband, who's a seven and pretty kind of carefree and happy go lucky and whatever. He said, do you know that there are people that think that they are okay, how they are and they don't need your help and don't want to change? And I thought he was joking because I didn't know that a person could live that way. I mean, I did go through a a phase of jealousy because that sounds amazing, but I really truly did not know. And so knowing that changed what I was doing in my work so much because it, I stopped offering advice and help to people who weren't asking for it. Mm-hmm. And I realized that when I was doing that, telling them something that, that there was something wrong with them and where I just thought I was being intuitive or helpful, but really I'm, I'm saying, Hey, I'm perfecting you because you're not perfect. Even though I would have never used those words in that moment. So I feel like that also took a lot of the responsibility off of me in the world to Mm -hmm. fix all the things. And my favorite question that I still have to ask myself every day, but I need it less and less because it's become more part of my life is, is this mine to do? And usually mm. I would say 99% of the time the answer is no. And so then I can go, okay, well, there, there's that. And so I can just leave people as they are in that. And that's okay. That's great. It's hard to do. I think it's, yeah, you all are my wing, one of my wings. 
So I can appreciate a lot of what you're saying, Angie, and it is hard. <laughs> what about others? I think uh, one of my challenges. For me, oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Ryan. I was just going to say, I think for me, um, it's interesting, the inner critic. Um, I remember having a conversation with an eight, um, and I was like, what do you mean you don't have a voice in your head all the time? Like, that just must be so freeing that you don't have someone telling you how you could have done better. Um, and I think that's just become so normal for me. Like, that's how I live. Like, even, like, if I, I do events and, like, projects and campaigns, and so whenever they, they come to completion, I don't ever sit in it and enjoy it. I am evaluating the progress and what I could have done better. And even, like, at one point in my life, I was a singer, and it's so funny, um, Every time I come off stage, I tell, I had asked my sisters, how did I do? What was wrong? Like, it was not like, oh, it was great. I, I'm like, don't lie to me. Like, what could have been better? That's always my first question. Um, and so I think that inner critic should have really strong for me. But then also um, just that, oh, you don't have to make everyone better. Um, I think I'm going to be asking myself, like, is this mine to do? I'm going to add that question to my life. Um, but I really have realized, like, the way I show love is like, oh, this is how this project could have been done better. But that's not how people perceive love. And so that was a huge learning curve for me. But also, I think those words, to me, were very negative for a really long time, um, like repressed anger, critical, all of these things. But now that I'm um, really more out in corporate, um, my background was a lot strongly in nonprofit, I think I've realized I'm an asset. Um, but an asset when used well, if I'm set up for success, this is going to like, if you understand my personality and what I see and I'm on a team where they value that I will thrive. Um, but I had to learn that I have to remove myself from some situations because what I bring is not what the organization needs and that's okay. Um, it's okay for me to move on and that that's not something that they might want to see or even need to see at that time. And once I took out the personal feelings, like it's not personal, it's just professional. It's okay for you to move on. I was fine. Yeah. Agree. That's a really hard one to not take that personally, you know, mm -hmm. as a critique for yourself. Um, and uh, when the way that you show up as a one isn't mm -hmm. isn't needed or appreciated for the circumstance. Um, I think one of my bigger challenges is that I align more with what I perceive as the right way to do something or the right right way to be, and. Um, Oh, that, you know, when you're working with a group and collaborating, that's, that's not always what's needed. Um, uh, so I can get really fixated on, you know, whether we're doing the right thing as a team or I'm, you know, um, being listened to for the right answers. And, um, and sometimes I know this is going to sound weird, but, um, if somebody on the team and maybe even the leader of the team that I'm on is doing things or saying things that I don't think are the right things to say or do, oh, it, it really is a hindrance for me trusting them, you know, moving forward because, um, because the right way is just really so, like, it's too important to me. You know, it, it creates a distrust sometimes when people don't do things the right way. So that can cause a lot of breakdown, you know, in a team. Um, definitely challenging. Um, so... Uh, could we dig in just for a minute? Um, if one of you all would share a little bit more about your relationship with the inner critic? 
because um, I know we all have inner critic. Um, I've heard it said from type one friends that I have that it's probably most dominant and loud with you know the way they they, they tell me about it is it is kind of this ever present voice of correction. And so knowing the type one adaptive strategy is really to figure out what, what needs improving and that the inner critic becomes um, an ally in improving that, whatever that is. So how have you gotten in relationship to the inner critic um, in a healthy way, in a way that's um, allowing you to see it for what it is without it controlling so much? Yeah, and that's for me. Yeah, I I think for me, um, some of the undoing of the inner critic is I, I think mostly my work is just undoing the inner critic. I'm not sure that the inner critic is helpful for me anymore. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm doing a lot of work on um, being present and you know, just paying attention to what's right in front of me because the inner critic is often telling me what I should be doing in the future or what I didn't do in the past. So if mm-hmm. I can stay present in that moment, um, you know, the inner critic is, is not able to have such a vice like grip for sure. So, mm-hmm. and then, um, yeah, um, our teachers say to, um, to do things the wrong way or to do the wrong thing to break up the inner critic or, you know, the, the passion of, of type one. And, and I have a hard time doing that, but I'm, I'm trying more and more, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, just little things like I set out to go for a run and midway through, I decided to walk and, mm-hmm. you know, let that be okay. Um, or, you know, showing up even to this podcast and not having memorized all my answers, you know, and just letting what is be okay. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want to be friends with my inner critic. <laughs> yeah. So for you, it's not, it doesn't, it hasn't turned into a coach. Like I hear some people talk about someone's mm-hmm. like, it's still there, but it's more of a coach than a critic. And that's not been the case for you, right, Christine? No, maybe not yet. Maybe if I, you know, get more enlightened, it will be. <laughs> right? We're all on the path. Yes. Uh, Raina or Angie, what about you all? Yeah. How have you I would say managed that? Kind of like what Christy said, it's so interesting. My word for 2021 is present. Um, and I really have had to learn um, that I can't dwell on what I did in the past. Um, and that I need, I can't plan my whole future. Like planning, yes, is great, but you don't need to, I will have lived out scenarios in my head for weeks or months. Like I will live out meetings in my head. I plan out my responses ahead of time to conversations and that's just not healthy. So like, I think for me, I'm learning to silence her voice. Um, and a way that that's like for me is I started working out again. Um, and then also I think my inner critic voice is the loudest before I go to bed. Um, so I have had to like, you know, just find healthier strategies. I don't have a TV in my room. I don't watch shows before I go to bed. And so for me, it's looked like, you know, white noise or putting music on because that's what I found will really silence my thoughts. Um, and if I silence my thoughts, I'm able to show up better, like in the moment. Um, and it's just not helpful for my relationship personally and then even professionally for me to 
go back and forth about what could have been or um, what needs to be moving forward. I think for me, the inner critic is not a healthy aspect of my life at this point. Um, so I'm really working to silence your voice and, and really trying to show up in present moments um, and just be who I am right now and not who I might be in 10 years or who I was 10 years ago. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, I agree with both Randa and Christy. The inner critic is not my friend. Mm -hmm. And I had to name my inner critic so I could start to call her out for her BS. Um, and and so I named her Aunt Lydia. And I don't know if you guys have seen the handouts. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> she is evil. Like, she is so horribly evil. But there are moments on that show where the handmaids believe she cares for them when she's mm -hmm. telling them how to be perfect and how to be right. And when I put that together one day, I was like, Oh my gosh, that is the name of my inner critic. It's exactly like that. I don't think she's ever kind. I don't think she's ever helpful. I do think at the beginning of the Enneagram work, I believed that she was keeping me from looking stupid in public, doing mm -hmm. things I was going to probably fail at. Um, taking bad pictures with double chins and like stuff, right? Like ridiculous stuff. And then over time, as I saw it more and more, I just didn't find anything good. And even just like two weeks ago, I had this moment where I was doing something and she started it up. She started up the, her, her chatter. And I was like, oh my gosh. And, and what often she, when often she gets loud is when I'm, doing something new or I'm doing something that's hard or there is risk of failing or I'm really putting myself out there. And I, I put it, I was like, Oh my gosh, she wants me to stay small. That's what her whole point is, is to keep me small yeah. and to keep me from living my life. And she's really effective at it. And she was for a long time. So, so anyways, I tell her to, I, I, I think it's just important for me in the moment to, call her out and be like, okay, that's Aunt Lydia. That's not reality. And so I am actually good at this, or I am a nice person, or I am trying my best. I don't have to be better than this. And so to kind of talk back to her is something that's been work has worked for me. I love that each of you all just mentioned an awareness of when the voice, the inner critic voice is the loudest, or when you're like really aware that she's chirping. And I've never thought about it that way. And so now I'm sitting here thinking about where does mine stew more and more? And I'm um, that's giving me a lot to think about. And I think, um, you know, not being a woman, I don't think I'm as clued into it all the time. It almost feels like it's like a backdrop. I don't know if that feels that way to you all, but it's just not something that I'm super cognizant of uh, because mm -hmm. my passion is pride. My journey is a little bit different. Um, I want to talk about your passion, right? So the passion of the one is anger. Um, you are also in, because your body type, you are in the, you know, quote, anger triad. So you know that there's kind of this double layer of anger, yet I can't remember who said it earlier. Um, there's the perception from the rest of us that you're so... You know, it's like the duck on the water. Like everything's kind of calm and contained, and 
they're cool. Um, so just talk a little bit about how this is showing up in your life, in your work. What are you doing with it? When you're making conscious moves to work with your passion or whatever, what does that look like? Um, I'll go first. Um, you know, in my in my less um, less enlightened days, you know, where I was just more re- feeling and responding. Um, you know, my anger really looked like um, you know, it was either perfecting myself or letting my um, husband know. Usually, it was my husband uh, know. You know what he was doing that, you know, wasn't working for me or wasn't helpful. You know, I was very critical, outwardly critical. And, um, you know, so it seemed like it he was like the avenue for, for that anger. Um, that's where it came out the most. Um, and, you know, more and more it's, you know, I've noticed it myself. I, um, I'm really lucky to have three um, adult children and one 16 year old and my adult children are 23 21 and 18. And so they're, they're awesome for calling me out on it. <laughs> so they notice it as passive aggression. So when they're, you know, what we have a really small home and with COVID we've been all together so much. So when they see me respond, um, you know, to my husband, they'll often say, uh, yeah, nice passive aggressiveness, mom, you know, like, wow, ooh, you know, and so they're really making me aware of it. And, um, so I'm, you know, just been working more on, you know, saying what I need and saying what I want, you know, and letting it come out in a, I think in a much more positive way. Um, yeah, much more constructive. I'm going to read real quick to uh, Beatrice B. Chestnuts, who's one of our teachers, characterizes the anger of Williams as a repressed anger. And I think she's talked about it. It leaks out. Mm-hmm. Um, that is channeled into doing the right thing and making a little better. The one's anger comes out in hostility to what is imperfect, not quite good enough, and tries to force things to conform to their ideal. So I think it's Christy, what you're saying with your, your husband. I think it just adds uh, a great example of how, kind of how that starts to leak out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I could add to that one. I think I could. I could say ditto to a lot of what Christy said. I have a 15 year old that kind of have a hunch might be an eight and he has called me out a bunch of times in the last year and a half. And he has said to me, and this has been so helpful in my own inner work, although absolutely humiliating in the moment he has said, why are you angry? What, what did I do? You're angry at me all the time, some different things. And None of the times that he has said something, I was actually angry with him. It had nothing to do with him. It was about what was happening in the world or whatever, something I was working through or I was insecure about or some sort of stress. And that really helped me to see how not fixing my stuff and not figuring out how to channel that into a, you know, feeling it in a healthier way really did affect me and affect the other people in my life that I loved. So I think I see it less in my work, although maybe that's a blind spot because I think ones are so appropriate. And so, you know, we can put it on 
when we're working with people and we're not necessarily going to look angry because of that, you know, that reaction formation. So we're going to look polite instead. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. And then like carrying that, sticking that all in our body and making all that pain and all that stuff worse. So it's, it's like, it's become for me just not an option to not figure out a way to do something with my anger. So I'm the sexual dominant subtype. So, and I don't think you guys are, right? I'm self-preservation, of course, okay. And I think that, um, so I'm the one that has the most outward anger, which is why I didn't, when I read about the one, I did not, I didn't see myself. I thought, I was like, well, that sucks. That sounds awful, you know? And then I kept going, reading through all the numbers. I could not see it because my anger is just a little bit different. So I'm working to, one of the things I'm working to do right now is when I'm angry and that that feeling that comes up and I recognize in my body to actually say, I am angry. I am angry about this. And to tell the person that I'm with, that I'm having that with, where instead before I'd be like, stuff it in and be polite instead or be friendly. And so that is helping me so much to like, I feel like I'm caring a little less, like, you know, from day to day. So it's kind of where I'm at on the, the anger journey. I think I relate a little bit to that. Um, I definitely like repressed anger is me. <laughs> um, I think I do a very good job of not, uh, at least I'd like to think that I do a very good job of not letting people know that I'm angry. Um, and I think it's because when I do finally express myself in the past, it has tended to come out like a volcano. So I do all that work of trying to keep it in. And then if I get to like my breaking point, there is no stopping the floodgates. They're open and I am going and you cannot, you just can't stop it. Um, and so I've learned like some of like, even my coping mechanisms have showed up. I do this odd thing where I rearrange furniture. Um, and my therapist told me it's something like that I can control. So I have rearranged my, I live in a one bedroom apartment, it's very small, but I've rearranged my living room and my bedroom more times than I can count. And I'm always aware, like, okay, I need to take a look at myself. Something's going on because I'll get these thoughts of like, oh, this lamp needs to go here. This couch, I live by myself. Like, I'll move my couch. I'll move my queen size bed. Um, but that's when I'm realizing, like, okay, I can control this environment, and I can't control other things that are going on. So I kind of need to take a look at that um, and like sit with that. And I am learning a little bit more to say things like, okay, in this moment, this time feeling. But I think the unhealthy side of me will sit in my feelings too long. Um, and just let my feelings control a narrative. So now I have said to myself, you're allowed to feel this for this amount of time, and then you need to get up and you need to move on. And I don't know if that's healthy, um, but that's how I've learned to kind of balance that out instead of avoiding. I like let myself sit in it for a second, and then I'm like, you have stuff to do. You cannot just stop. You have to get up and move on. So that's a little bit wherever I'm at with anger. Yeah. I just want to add on to the anger pile here. Um, it's, it's hard to manage that when you're in leadership, um, when you're working with a team, you know, wanting to accomplish a goal or get things done. Um, I don't know about you guys, but 
people can read me, you know, like Mm -hmm. I've never been able to hide um, how I feel. (laughs) So, you know, if I'm frustrated or irritated, it it comes out. And then if I actually like say something or let it out, um, well, at least how it's been in the past for me, um, it's, you know, it feels like it's too much. You know, I often feel like, um, you know, it's really hard for me to express myself without being too much. Um, I don't know if you guys resonate with that or not. Um, so it's, you know, trying to, you know, what I think I really defer to is just not saying anything, you know, I just better, you know, play nice and be quiet. And so really becomes challenging to give input and feedback and participate, you know, when I'm worried about being too much or, you know, being angry, you know, leading with anger. So it's interesting that you say that, Chrissy. Um, that the phrase too much is like a trigger for me because my whole life I've been told you're too much Um, and I have realized, no, I just was in spaces that weren't for me. Um, And yes, were there moments when I needed to adjust and I was probably being extra? Absolutely. But I think overall, I think the spaces I was in, they just weren't the spaces that were for me. And once I found my spaces, I was able to thrive. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I'm still looking for mine. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about uh, your virtue of serenity. I'm really interested in how you're seeking that out. Uh, If you're seeking it out, is it something that you're conscious about in your life? Uh, Aranio Pius talks about serenity as extremely calm. In serenity, the body is relaxed and receptive. And you can allow life to happen without force. You're lighter and you feel more free to act spontaneously. So, how is this looking for you? What are any of some practices that you're, you're, you know, consciously trying to integrate more into your life as you grow in this area? Yeah. So, for me, cultivating serenity has been just key. Um, I've always been a person who wakes up early before my family so I can take some quiet time. And um, that was really challenging with four kids, you know, being in a small space. And um, so one of the one of the things my husband has done for me is built me this little kind of office that I'm in that's completely separate from the house. And, you know, surprisingly, I feel a lot of serenity up here because I can control the environment. So I guess, you know, being able to, control the environment is helpful. I don't think it's, you know, the most enlightened path, but, um, some other things that I did, especially last year during COVID when all four of my kids were home and gosh, even my husband was working from home sometimes is I would go out in my yard and just, um, sit in our jacuzzi and float, you know, just lay on my back and float and breathe really deeply and look up at the tree and, um, you know, it sounds, it's, it's as a one that sounds like you're doing nothing or wasting time, but it was just so essential to my peace of mind and to feeling okay in the world. And, um, you know, some other things I do to stay in that, ser- be more, you know, in that serenity space is, um, uh, doing yoga, um, you know, just moving my body. That's really great for me or being out in nature is, is really awesome for that. I can add. I think, 
Oh, sorry. See, we're so polite. You know, that's the problem. When you talk about Somebody's got to jump in, right? Was everybody wait? And then everybody was like, well, it's my responsibility to fill the silence, right? So, right. <laughs> and then we all over apologize, too. So, uh, okay, I'm just going to in action right now, y'all. Everybody listening, this is it right now. I'm going to take up 30 seconds of space here, unapologetically, yeah. and say, um, just for a second, that serenity is like, I don't even know. Um, it's, it's like the only thing I feel like I want is that ability to be calm in my mind and in my body, in my heart. And I don't feel like that a lot of the time. I mean, I don't, I feel thinking of like, we're talking about all the body stuff, like all the pain and anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety and I just feel it everywhere. And so one of the things that really helps me get into that calm place is music. And so I bought myself some really crazy noise canceling headphones a couple months ago. Uh, all my kids did e-learning, I mean, until the end of this year. So there was a lot of people here for a long time and I just don't have the ability to not hear all of the things and to, to not take it all in. So I bought these crazy headphones. We're like, I think if one of my kids was screaming behind me, I would not hear them, which is amazing. And so putting on music and then finding music that like helped me get into this place of being able to breathe differently because I can hold my breath a lot and like do this thing with my shoulders a lot. Another thing that I think really helped me during COVID was this little device called HeartMath. I don't know if you guys know about HeartMath, but there's an app you use and the, the, it's like a, you like hook it to your ear and it has Bluetooth and there's an app for your phone and it's teaching you how to breathe and slow down. And they're using words like coherence and it's like teaching you how to have a lot of anxiety, but to calm yourself, you keep practicing it so that you can obviously go out into the world and then calm yourself. And I found that after I started doing that, like every day, and mind you, I was waiting until I was about to have a panic attack to use it, but <laughs> it was really helpful to me. And I was able to eventually kind of be like, oh, I remember that feeling of how to breathe to make my heart rate go down and kind of being able to do that. And even just doing those things with my body, I feel like helps me get even in a place where I can enter into the realm of serenity, if that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think I agree with what both of you are saying. Yeah, I have to plan my moments of serenity. Um, that's something I've learned because I am a doer, so I will do all the things for all the people at the expense of self. Um, so with fibromyalgia, like, and I have a few other chronic things, but fibro is like the one that I feel like takes me out the most. Um, I've had to learn massages are good for me. So now that I have my job again and I'm not a grad student, like I put that back into, um, effect. So I have a 90 minute massage scheduled in two weeks and I had one a couple weeks ago. Um, and I always like would tell myself like, oh, like you could spend the money on this or like, it's not important. But I really was like, no, if I do this, I am my best self. Um, something else 
I did. I hired a house cleaner, um, which sounds extravagant for a one-bedroom apartment. Um, but I realized, like, these are the things, like, work is a priority to me, spending time with my family, traveling to see my family, um, having a certain kind of life. And I am my best self when I have some help. Um, and like with fibro, I can't clean my house and cook and work on the same day. It's just physically impossible. Um, and if I decide to do that, then I'm bedridden for a couple of days. Um, so I was like, you know what, this will help me be my best self and not stress me out to have someone come and help me. Um, and I'm very thankful for her help. It's really, um, allowed me to have more peace and to seek out more space to rest. Um, I think like baths are huge for me. Um, I probably take the bath three or four times a week, but I really have to plan out that space of like, I need the quiet. I need the calm. I'm so used to being on. Um, I'm professionally extroverted, but deep down I'm an introvert. So feeling away like moments of peace, like even sometimes like if I've been with people all day, um, or if I'm staying with my family, I will take a bath at one o'clock in the morning because it's the only moments of like quiet that I have. Um, and I need that just to like rejuvenate and nothing's wrong. I just need to be my best self. So for me, like serenity has looked like planning it out. I know that calm really helps me, but I have to be intentional about planning out those moments of calm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to one more going back to um, being present. Um, that's been so key for me. You know, whether it's just lighting a candle and looking at the candle, mm-hmm. or you know, walking in nature, just being in the moment. Because I think one of the the key characteristics of being a self-preservation one is anticipating. You know, I I'm always thinking ahead and what needs to be done and what might happen, you know, whether it's my budget or, you know, with my coaching work, um, I, my mind is just always, you know, thinking ahead. Um, and it's, it's great. I mean, the benefit of that is I have a really good budget, you know, (laughs) super good, Mm -hmm. um, budget in our family and, um, you know, that, that works out well and, you know, everything runs well and my coaching business runs well. Um, I show up when I need to show up, but it's, it's just a lot of um, mental energy, you know, going towards that anticipating all the time. So um, I need to just drop in the present, be there. And it sounds heavy, too. You know, What's that? Like, it sounds heavy. Like, as I listen, I'm thinking about just like the, you know, the Sisyphus carrying the big, the, the, the standards of how I have to be in the world, um, not only now, but anticipating the future events, the future possibilities and then managing that was just um, just heavy is the word that came up for me. I want to talk a little bit about the growth path. And so really, you know, the idea that you all did such such a brilliant job talking about the type of personality structure and kind of what those, um, what that is, what those strategies are. So as you're Moving in, using the Enneagram to grow. Um, specifically, we'll talk about arrows and wings a little bit. We can start with the wings. So your wing is a nine or two. So how, um, and the type nine is the motivated, for people that don't know, type nine is motivated, 
um, for inner harmony. Uh, I think some of the movement teachers call it the peacemaker. Um, and they're, they, they have a core fear of separation that, um, that would happen through conflict. And so they really, you know, their strategy is to kind of go with the flow, to get along in the world, so that I don't disconnect from people in my life. Um, and then the type two is my type. We are um, motivated to, you know, we're called the helper. It's kind of a typical definition. Um, I think of us as more of the, I think Beatrice calls it the defenders. So we're strategically trying to help people to get our own needs met. And the core fear is unlovable. <laughs> I have to do something to overlook. So how, you know, knowing that these are your wings, um, and they have a, we can consciously get our wings, you know, incorporate the high side of those characteristics, or the unconsciously go to the wings and incorporate the low side. Um, so how, how are you consciously thinking about your wings and using them in your day-to-day life to grow yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a wing too. Um, and I'm for sure not a peacemaker. Like I knew that I was like, yep, that's not me. <laughs> I'm on the other end of the spectrum. Um, but I think for me, it showed up, um, I'm surrounded by two. Um, which is so funny because we are so opposite. Um, like I feel like ones and twos, just how we communicate. Um, and like, Oh, just tell me, tell me what you need. Don't like, if I say, tell me something, you're actually not going to tell me. You're just going to sit there and like, Oh, I don't want to bother her or something like that. But it's so funny. My best friends are too, like a lot of my community there too. Um, but at a certain point in my life, I was a nanny. Um, and so I think my two shows up strongest, um, when I'm with the kids. Um, and like I said, I'm still connected to them still to this day, but I think they really helped me see a softer side of myself. Um, that like most people don't necessarily get to see, but they really helped me tap into a side that I like, I didn't really know was there. Um, and it's a side that I really enjoy about myself. Like with them, I don't feel like I have to be on all the time. Like I can just show up as my full self and they accept me as I am. Um, so I think that's something I'm trying to bring that side into more of my relationships. Um, but it's hard when you're a one and you either want to be seen or feel like you need to be seen as someone who has it together. Uh, For me, um, I'm, uh, married to a nine. And, um, my youngest daughter is a nine. So I have a lot of nine energy around me. And, um, I'd like to say that I have full appreciation for it most of the time. (laughs) It's challenging. Um, but, uh, I think for, um, just growth using the nine is just slowing way down, you know, just being in the moment, you know, um, doing life like my husband does it where he just, you might have something to do. And instead of doing all this preparation for it and you know, anticipating and talking about it, it just kind of shows up to it. It's just in the space and in the moment. And so I, um, I try to emulate that. And um, similar to Randa, being with people and being present with them is so awesome for me because like Randa, it, it takes kind of the focus off of me and what I need to do and what I should be doing and just being with people, you know, I love having like a dinner party and just like 
losing myself in conversation and, and connecting. Um, yeah. My son's the nine. I'm pretty sure he's a nine. Yeah, I think he's a self-pose nine. And since he was tiny, tiny tot, I would walk, like, I'd be in his, his energy field, and I would immediately come. Like, it's just weird how there's just a flow of calmness that comes, it emanates from his, his little bubble of energy. And it, it's occurred to me, it's like, okay, I can do that for myself. I don't have to go walk and be next to him. So I love that you're, you're, I've got some nine energy in my life too. And it's, um, it can be challenging, but it's really lovely too. And I just, you your ways. I would, I would say, um, I could say ditto to both those two things. Ditto to the nine, ditto to the two. And the funny thing that, Randa, that you said about being with kids when you were a nanny, I actually thought about that this morning. And I wondered if that was true, but like I, I always get, well, let's say pre-COVID, I would get myself signed up for all sorts of volunteer things I didn't really want to do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because it was my responsibility or I could or whatever. Yeah. I wanted to do the right thing. But one of the things I got conned into because one of my best friends asked was, teaching like kids church, right. With three to five year olds, mm-hmm. which I don't, I'm like, I have, I have kids, but I don't know if I like, like other yeah. kids, you know? And so right. one of the things that I found was that doing that made me feel so much like lighter in my heart and in my body. Mm-hmm. Those two hours I was with them. When you said that, I wondered if that's because that helps us get closer to that play that we need and the mm-hmm. play is so healthy mm-hmm. for ones. And I don't know, it's just interesting mm-hmm. that you said the kid thing too. So just random thought. Yeah. Okay. I, I want to ask you all one last question. Um, I know we're running out of time. Mm-hmm. I want to know what your growth as a one has been like for the people. How has it affected others? Uh, that you live with, that you work with, that you relate to? What have you been told? What have you observed? That's a good question. It's a tough one. Do we have to step out of ourselves a little bit? Mm -hmm. Do that self-observation. I could start on that. I think this has probably saved my marriage. And even if we would have stayed together, I think we could have lived in some version of misery forever. I think that we understand each other so much more. And there were so many things. My husband's name is Nick. He's a seven. And there were so many things he said that I just did not see. And like one thing he would say was that I never apologized. And I felt like I was apologizing all the time. I mean, I really did. Like, I'm like always wrong, right? I screw up everything, right? I'm always apologizing, but I was missing some of the important things because I think they were just blind spots and I couldn't see, I couldn't see the anger. I couldn't see all like the leaking out or I couldn't see how, what we call them were my helpful hints. So like my suggestions to, you know, help him and make him better were really hurting us because 
this would probably really improve his life, right? That's kind of like what we think when we're on autopilot as a one, like, well, this would be really helpful if you just did this dang thing, right? Just do it. And so, um, so that, that I think has been, I don't know. I think, I think we've got like a really good shot of having like a really good life together. And another thing I wanted to say was that, um, there's no way you can do this work and, and not have it like ripple out to all your people, right. And to all the things you're a part of. And I had a friend come to me, she's a seven, she's really guarded and she doesn't, you know, hear a lot of stuff. And she shares all of her deepest things with me or all, not, I don't know all of them, but a lot of them. And she said, she said to me that I was the, the least, not the least judgmental person she knew. And that like shook me. I mean, like that was like the most amazing thing, but it also shook me because I don't know if someone would have said that five years ago or 10 years ago, that I was the least judgmental person that they knew. And then one last thing that I'm done. Um, I had a couple eights, eight women in one of my groups a couple months ago who told me that I created a space for them where they felt that it was safe to be vulnerable. And that was like coming from eights, especially like that. I mean, I wrote it on a, like a sticky note and I have it somewhere. I can see it all the time that you created a safe space. And so that was something that I don't think I could have done without this work. I think that's just a reflection of the real people. For sure. Yeah, I think for me. Okay, I'll go. Um, <laughs> Sorry, there's a delay. <laughs> All right. Um, for me, uh, you know, during COVID, I think that was just so much pressure, um, you know, on everything in my personal space and on my time and. Um, one of the things that I noticed is when I was putting dinner together for everybody, I had all these expectations of how dinner would be, you know, that the meal had to be hot, that it had to be healthy. There had to be vegetables with it and, um, that we'd all sit down together, you know, and this is for six people, like six adult people. That's, that's a lot. Right. And it just, dawned on me. I was like, actually, like what would happen if I just made the food and left it on the counter and let everybody get their glasses, you know, get their drinks, get, serve themselves food. We'll show up at the table when we show up. And, you know, that's, I don't know if anybody else notices a difference, but, you know, dinner just feels so much more relaxed to me, you know, and I can be present with my family and I'm not showing up frustrated and irritable, you know, okay, a little bit I am still, <laughs> but, um, just because I am, but, um, no, it's, um, it is, it's really noticeable, I think, um, for myself. I'm, I'm calm inside, then it's definitely going to come out for other people. Um, and then, yeah, the other thing that I want to say is um, for a long time, you know, I just felt like, you know, something needed to happen for me to be happy or for things to be good. And, um, excuse me, I was doing some introspection and um, for a period of time. And I just realized, you know, I have so many things to, to like prove or show to me that my life is good. You know, I have a, a very good husband, um, who's committed and loyal and, you know, 
does all the things and I have great kids and I have a home and we can pay the bills. And, you know, it was like the sense of like, okay, why, you know, I have so many great things. It's really hard as a one to notice that, to be appreciative and to live into that. And, um, you know, I always felt like I was like one click away from happiness, you know, like all the, all the ingredients are there. Like, why can't I be happy? And, um, I do think that, you know, with this inner work, um, I'm stepping into that happiness so much more often, you know, I'm more aware of it. And, um, when I'm, you know, internalizing that, that happiness and that goodness, then I'm, I'm able to manifest that to the people around me and to my environment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have two stories that I can think of. I think the first most recent one, um, I had a friend, we were like, whose love language is words of affirmation. Um, and I said, Oh, how am I doing? Um, and they were like, yeah, you don't affirm. Uh, this is not a part of your story. You don't do that. Um, but I was like, okay, that was a good, I was like, I'm so glad you felt comfortable to tell me that because now it's something I'm actively working on. Um, and I'm aware and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I really don't. I think as a one, I'm just like, well, yeah, that was great. Like, don't you already know that? Um, so I think that is like a very practical, like I was so thankful in that conversation, like that they were comfortable enough to share that with me. Um, and then I think about a year ago, I was having like a birthday dinner and, um, one of my friends who's an eight gave a toast. Um, and he said, um, I'm so thankful, like for your servant's heart. Um, and it was such a redemptive, like statement for me. Um, because in my heart, like at the core, right? Like, you know, we want to be good. Um, and I really do try to show up and serve. Um, and sometimes I think in trying to show up and serve, it gets flipped to like trying to make people better. But at the heart of it, it really is. I just want to help. Um, and it just really showed me that like, I got to a place in like these relationships where the help was just showing up. Like it wasn't like the perfection that was showing up. Um, so I think that this was so cool, like to see, especially that it was coming from an eight, like that, that, um, is what they saw in me. That's awesome. You all have been so generous with your time, your thinking, your hearts. Um, I'm just am grateful for each of you all. I'm going to leave you. I've been doing some thinking about what I imagine each type needs most to hear. Um, and I could be totally wrong, but this is what I imagine the type one could, could use uh, people that that love them, and we can think about it as the divine, you know, the things that we most need to hear. So, we type them, perfection isn't the goal. We are wonderful just as you There's nothing you need to control because everything is unfolding exactly So, that is my sign-off blessing for the three of you. I'm just thank you. I'm grateful for you and your time today. This has been a gift. Oh, this has been great, Shelley. It's fun to spend time yeah, with you. Thank way. you for having us. Definitely. And don't be strangers, right? Mm-hmm.